good to see everybody this morning. It is great to be in the house of the Lord, and by the house of the Lord, I don't mean this building. I mean in the presence of God's people together, the house of the Lord, and um, it's really good to be with you. Love Cornerstone, one of my favorite groups of people on earth here at Cornerstone. Love you all, and really glad to be with you today. A couple things. Uh, First of all, after the service, if you need prayer, Mike is your guy right here, um, and you can receive prayer from Mike after the service. Um, Also, uh, Mother's Day, I had the distinct privilege of having a mom who prayed, um, and I I still do. Uh, (laughs) I am still very much sustained by the prayer of my my mother, although... uh, there's a bit of a tag team. My wife prays like all the time. Um, and uh, having, having the prayers of a mother is a really powerful thing. For those of you who were able to experience that, I, I think Joy's, Joy's prayer really was kind of hitting on a bunch of spaces. There was a beautiful prayer that the Lord gave her. And, uh, and I think that uh, the, the glory that goes to the Lord from the, the prayers of a parent, particularly a mother, are it's a it's a, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing, and uh, so I just want to join in that prayer for a second and respond here. Okay, Father, we thank you for the gift of mothering. We thank you for the structure that you gave to us in uh, human the institution of human relationships being rooted in how you form two individuals who have so much in common in a male and a female and yet have some things that are very distinct and and unique and different and then offspring and this family unit and where where this woman it it goes from being uh, not only a unique individual before God and not only uh, the, the wife of this husband, but now becoming also the mother of this child and, and what that represents in light of you, God. And, and that being a, a, such a central part of your nature, your image. Being one who nurtures, being one who prays and intercedes, being one who gives birth, being one who God uh, carries all of the qualities that that we stereotypically may think of when we think of that uh, that model, that picture, that idea of mothering. And we thank you that that's found in you. We thank you that it's also found in humanity because you placed it there. And again, God, for those who haven't experienced that in the fullness in the flesh here, we ask that in the spirit it would be poured out God deeply because all that's available through a human mother is even more deeply available in you. And we thank you and praise you for that. We also ask that those who are mothers, that God, we ask that you would strengthen them today for their work, which is profoundly impactful and vital in our society. And we ask especially, God, that the spirit of prayer would generationally pass forward and that we would see mothers labor in prayer for their children. In the name of Jesus, amen. Before we move on, there's another prayer that I want to pray. Um, We'll get into it, uh, and that has to do with leaders. I often pray for pastors when I come to uh, a church, as you know, and we will pray for, for Justin. But I really want to pray for the leadership here at Cornerstone while Justin and Naomi are gone um, and while they're on sabbatical. Uh, and, I, and before I go into that prayer, I just want to let you know, you know, I've personally been through sabbatical. I've journeyed with others through sabbatical. I've walked with churches through sabbatical. And for some people, it can be a little unsettling, you know, and a little worrisome. But when you look back after sabbatical and you look back, you realize it really wasn't as big of a deal as it felt at the time as far as the stress and the tension and the fear of it. And it turns out that it was a bigger deal as far as the value and the impact. And, 
And so yeah, in, in, in years to come, you'll look back at this season with, with the sense of looking back and seeing what God did in that moment rather than feeling the stress that may have come from that moment, you know. And uh, so with that said, let's go into a moment of prayer here. God, I just, uh, first of all, God, we thank you and praise you for your leadership of your church. And we thank you how diverse that leadership is. We thank you that it's looked so differently over the generations of the church, over the, the decades and the centuries and the millennium of the church. And that you have still reigned as king, as lord, as savior, as God, as ruler. And especially you have in every way been the head of your church. And you have done that in the way that you've always done it, by serving us in the most humble of ways. And we thank you for that. And we know that, God, it's an incredible gift to be able to have those who provide leadership among us. You tell us in Ephesians 4, that is exactly what they are. They are gifts from you to help keep us as a body interconnected with one another and all together connected to you. But we also know, God, that at times we get accustomed to allowing human leaders to lead church and fail to remember the fact that truly this entire thing is led solely, entirely by you. And you allow us to participate in your leadership, which is a gift. And you allow others to participate in leading us, which is a gift. But there is nothing, and we declare this as a creed together, there is nothing that can take away from the amazing leadership of Jesus Christ through his spirit, governed by the word in the church. And so we bless you and for those who are providing leadership here while Justin and Naomi are gone, God, we just ask that there would be uh, ingenuity, creativity, strength, that there would be joy. I'm, remind, I'm reminded at Cornerstone right now as we're praying of <laughs> this, I haven't thought about this in a while, this small little church, tiny, tiny, tiny little church in a, in a little village of Ireland in central Ireland called Turles. And it was this tiny little church. And, and another one, actually, that was in, in Cork in Ireland. Both of them being just a handful of people, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe 20 people at the most. And how clearly God was leading them and how distinctly I sensed the presence of God among them as we worshipped. And how the impact in the community was profound without any staff leadership and without any of that going on. And, and just how in, in these small little ways hidden in the corners of the earth, Jesus, you have a way of doing some of your very best work. And so we ask that during this time that as leaders lead and as leaders submit and yield to you, that God, we ask that you would just be with them as Barry leads the elder team, as the, the elders provide leadership in the congregation, as, as Jim and Joy both step into roles here, and as Tessa's providing leadership, and as Ron's helping out with worship, and for all of them and their families, God, throughout this time, we just ask that we would be reminded of what it looks like to be a team of people who come together around Christ. And it would be just a wonderful family time. We ask for that blessing in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So the, the message today is about core values. This is about core values, as Joy was talking about. The way I understand core values, you know, we come along churches on a, on a regular basis and help them kind of think through what they're about, what they're doing. And when we use the term core values, the way I tend to use that term is core values have to do with the ethics that we hold on to when it comes to how we are pursuing the mission. So we have a purpose, and we have a mission, and then we have these values. And our purpose is why we're doing anything we're doing, right? And as Christians, 
And as humans, we all have the same purpose. We exist to glorify God and to enjoy God, or to know God and to show God, to know God and make him known. Those are all the, the reasons, that's the purpose of why we exist. And that's standard, that's just is what it is. But then you have a mission, and, and perhaps one of the most central missions that we speak of is the Great Commission, which is making disciples of all nations. Leading people into the presence of God, baptizing them, teaching them to submit to God, that's the mission. So our purpose is we glorify God and we, we know God, we relate to God, we glorify God. And in the process, we're going after this mission where we're making disciples. But then as we're doing those things, how we do them is formed by our values. Okay? And those are our ethics. Those are kind of the pillars, which means when I'm making disciples, I'm not doing that in cheap ways with cheap tricks. You know, that I'm not, it's not sleight of hand to try to make it look like God is something big when I haven't experienced him that way. It's not trying to get you, convince you to get across a line that you're not ready to step across yet. It's not manipulation. It's not human-centered by grit. A core value would be we do it by prayer. We do it by honesty and integrity. We do it in confession, being real with each other, right? So when we're sharing the gospel with people, we're not just trying to drag people across the line. We're keeping it real, and we're expecting God to move. And that's a core value that informs the mission that we're going after, which is all underneath the banner of the purpose and why we exist. Think about that in terms of, of uh, this is a season coming up. We get into the spring, some High schoolers are going to be going through testing, right? Going through their academic testing, maybe taking their SATs or whatever. And what's the, what's the purpose of this testing? <laughs> maybe a lot of teenagers saying, yeah, anyway. <laughs> the grand purpose of the education, of course, is to equip minds to be prepared for the rest of life and what they're going after. For this testing in particular is to provide assessment for the sake of placement and within that purpose, there's a mission. And the mission is to get as many answers right as possible in order to get the best grade possible, the best score possible. That's the mission within the greater purpose. But then the values in how you pursue that mission have to do, again, with things like integrity. We don't cheat, right? We do it the right way. We don't just try to cram we try to do it right. And when we use our time, we use it efficiently. And, and those are all values by which we go after. So when, when Justin outlined this series and he says, what are our core values? What that means is, as a congregation, when we're pursuing the mission that God calls us to, we want that to be consistent with our purpose. Because sometimes our mission can get out in front of our purpose. And we're so gung-ho about trying to accomplish things that we forget that it has to be under the banner of our purpose. And so these core values help keep us in line. Which means when I'm doing what God's asking me to do, I'm doing it in a way that still glorifies God. And so that's why we have the core value. Now, the core value that we're going after right now is the core value of spirit and truth. That's a core value here at Cornerstone, a named core value. And in particular, Justin asked that, uh, that I would be framing that in terms of one of the missions, one of the practices of the church, which is worship. And so in light of worship, when we are seeking to worship God, when we are seeking to give, what, give God what he is worth, give to him what he is worth, that's what worship is about, worship, giving God what he is worth. And as we seek to give God all that he is worth, how are we doing that in a way that reflects both spirit and truth? Okay, and so that's what we're talking about today. All right, I want to play a song for you. And, uh, and have any of you, any of you ever remember the song? I've got the joy, 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 joy. Okay. All right. Yeah, hear this version of it. Okay. Go ahead.
somewhere. Joy, 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 joy. Down Keep letting it play. This is a band called Page 116. They take old hymns and they kind of make them a little more modern or do it their own way. And, and I'm um, so happy. I love their music in general. So happy. So very happy. The truth is I've got the joy of the Lord and I'm so happy, but the spirit of this and song I'm so happy. does not really seem so to match the truth of the lyrics, does it? So okay, drop please. Stop the song. Colton, one time, there was a song that came on the radio that was, uh, Colton's my youngest son, and when he was just a little guy, uh, by the way, you guys haven't seen my kids anymore. Evan's the same height as me now. Looks eye to eye with me, and Colton's not far behind. These guys are growing like weeds. But Colton, when he was just a little guy, a song came on that was about that melancholy, and he turns to Jen and he says, Mom, is this song crying? <laughs> it's funny how a little kid can sense the spirit of something. And, and in this song that we were just playing, when, when it gets later in the song, you hear the lyrics and you understand what they're actually doing and why they're doing it. I still don't like listening to that song. It kind of creeps me out. Um, when it comes to worship, it's vital that we are able to take the truth of who God is and match that with a spirit that understands and relates to the presence of that living God. Anybody in this room have a dream car, a car that you really wish you could have? Like if you could, yeah, what is it? Ah, okay, like one of the, the jeepney, the truck, with, yeah, yeah. So if you took that, okay, another one? Okay, all right. So for each of them, if you got out the manual or you checked out the YouTube videos, you could learn all the details of those vehicles. You could learn all about those vehicles. And then I would say, do you know that car? Well, of course you don't know that car. You know all about that car. But you don't know that Jeep until you take it off-road on a mountain road and you find out what it feels like. You don't know that Corvette until you put it on a track and see what it's got and you feel that steering wheel as you're going around the curve, right? That's when you start to know the car. And when it comes to God, we can read the manual and read the text and it teaches us so much about God. But in order to actually know God, we have to get in the driver's seat and begin to test out life in pursuit of Jesus, life in the Spirit. And if I pursue life in the Spirit, but I haven't read the manual, <laughs> then there's going to be a whole lot of things that I don't know what to do when they come up. And even if God's trying to communicate to me, there's going to be things that are missing in my knowledge of who God is that aren't going to be able to make sense of the things that I'm seeing and experiencing and sensing around me and within me. The difference between spirit and truth is essential. It's essential. But even more essential is the combination of both spirit and truth in Christ. If I pursue truth but don't have spirit, what can happen is that I can speak the words that are coming out of my mouth but not mean them from my heart. And just like my son Colton knew that a song was crying, if I say I love you but he's seeing something else in my life, that, those words don't transfer to a reality in his life. I can speak words that, that I want to be true, but if they're not embodied in my spirit, then they are no longer true. Truth stops being truth when it is not rooted in a spirit that is consistent with that truth. Likewise, I can have a heart and a spirit that is in line, that is going the right direction. 
But if it is not aligned with the reality of truth, then it leads to disaster. Let me give you an example. I remember one day I was out running and a, and a woman comes uh, driving up next to me and she starts asking me directions to the local Colb's uh, Dairy. Well, Colb's Dairy, I was like, oh, it's right around the corner. It's right up here. She drives, goes around the corner, turns around and comes back. She said, that's not it. And I was like, what? And she said, yeah, Colb's Dairy. And I'm like, oh. She said, I think it's on Cedarville Road. Oh, Colb very different place. That's a, and I send her a different direction. My intentions can be right, but if the details of those directions go wrong, then it doesn't matter what my intentions are. You've probably heard the phrase that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That intentions are one thing. The, the, the kind of posture that I carry is one thing, but the realities are something very different. And, and a good posture, a good intention, is not the same thing as being yielded to truth. This whole idea of spirit and truth, it comes from John chapter 4. And you know this text. And I've referred to this text while teaching here before. But we're just going to go after this passage. Because if we're talking about the core value of spirit and truth, then we might as well go to the place where the truth is revealed about spirit and truth. Okay, so turn with me to John chapter 4. Anybody know anything about John chapter 3? The, the, the most famous verse in American church history, of course, is in John chapter 3. And that's in, in the middle of what story? Nicodemus, the story of Nicodemus, the religious leader. And... Uh, and, and it is very important, of course, to understand context when we're looking at any text of Scripture. The fact that this story comes directly after the story of Nicodemus is absolutely essential, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But Jesus has just, got, just been done speaking down in Judea with this religious leader, and then John the Baptist, notably down in Judea outside of Jerusalem, has a ministry going on. And then we get to chapter 4, as Jesus is coming from there, it says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. We're just going to walk like kind of verse by verse or phrase by phrase down through this a little bit. Of course, what's amazing about Jesus, and I love this, I'm sure you do too, is that it's only once that he's like making disciples and baptizing people and the ministry's growing that he's just like, I'm out. And he bounces. And it's counterintuitive. I mean, most people, when they see the thing working and growing, they want to entrench and stay. And Jesus is like, oh, they know that this is working. I better move on and leave. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. He was headed up to Galilee. He left Judea and departed for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. When it says he had to pass through Samaria, had is a really interesting word there because many, many, many Jews, of course, as you know, would not pass through Samaria. And so he still had to pass through Samaria. You assume that's because the Lord his father had a divine appointment for him. So he came to a town of Samaria called... Oh, by the way, have you guys seen The Chosen? There's that video series of Jesus uh, 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 made by... Uh, I can't remember his name right now. Dallas uh, Jenkins. Um, and if you have not seen that, it is awesome. It is awesome. You should go online and check it out. And it's the life of Jesus. And when... When in that, in that film, in that miniseries, when Jesus is talking to his disciples about having to go through Samaria, it's priceless the way they frame that whole thing. I'll just leave that hanging for you so that you can check it out. So he says, uh, let's see, he, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, one thing that is important to know about truth is that truth is generational. 
It is immovable, and it is generational. Truth, by definition, is not flexible in the sense of it doesn't change. It can be applied differently in different circumstances, but the reality of that truth stays the same. The fact that Jesus is at a well that was there how many generations before is already an indication for us of the longevity of the heritage of the truth of who God is, okay? And, and, and we're supposed to gather that as we read this. It's the sixth hour, and this, of course, uh, is noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, do you think that it was intentional that Jesus waited until his disciples were gone? This conversation could not have happened or gone well if his disciples were there. There is no way that that conversation would have gone the same way if there was 12 Jewish men around Jesus with this woman. He was waiting for the right moment. You know, and I know, that um, Jewish men, men and women in general, the conversations between men and women in public were very different back then than they would be now. And you know that conversations between Jews and Samaritans were uh, almost completely and totally nil unless there was some significant business involved that uh, required them to cross those lines. And here we have a Jewish rabbi speaking with a Samaritan woman, asking for a drink. Now, this is awkward. And I just want to say that when we follow not only the truth, but when we follow the Spirit, we have to be willing to be awkward. Our image management has to be sacrificed on the altar of living sacrifice as our pleasing act of worship to God. If I am unwilling to be awkward, if I am unwilling to be weird, if I am unwilling to break social norms, then I am putting a guardrail on my ability to walk by the Spirit and to follow Jesus. And we know this because Jesus himself was wildly awkward at certain moments. And Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. That means Jesus is truth. And remember, truth doesn't change. And so if he acted awkward back then, he still acts awkward at times now. And if I'm a follower of Jesus, then i got to follow him into really awkward places. If I can look at my life and say, it's been about, you know, a couple years since I've done anything that's required me to be awkward in my relationship with God, then I want to ask you to ask God, am I following you in all the places that you are calling me? Give me a drink. I love this because he puts her in the position of power. She has something he needs. He's the Jewish rabbi. He's, he's, he's the, the male in the situation. The Samaritans are outcasts. So, and he's a teacher. He's a rabbi. He has position. From all social framework, he's in the position of power. Instead, he shows vulnerability. He says, I have a need that I would like you to meet if possible. Please give me a drink. He doesn't say please. He says give me a drink. Her response is awesome. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask, me for, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then parenthetically, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She calls out his awkwardness. Again, when's the last time that you were called out for your awkwardness because of your relationship with Jesus? 
This is a regular part of being a stranger and an alien in this world. I believe Joy mentioned a few times that we are called to be a peculiar people. You know, social norms are things that, they're not written rules, they just tend to be things that everybody knows. Like if you show up at my house at like 1130 and knock on my door and say, hey man, want to hang out? I'm going to be like, (laughs) go home and go to bed. What are you doing? You know? Jesus coming to a Samaritan woman and asking her for a drink is straight up madness. And he does it intentionally. We find out later that he doesn't have a cup to drink from. Whose cup is he going to drink from? Man, imagine if you're sitting at a park bench and you got a bottle of Mountain Dew next to you and somebody sits down and grabs your Mountain Dew and unscrews the cap and starts drinking from it. That's awkward. Get your lips off my bottle. (laughs) Jesus to a Samaritan woman asks for a drink. Talk about changing the game. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and and he would have given you living water. I love this. If you knew the gift of God that was being given to you. John 3.16, can we say it together? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The gift that is given in the chapter before is the gift of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. If you knew the gift that was here, you would ask. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let all who are thirsty come and drink freely from the water of the well of life. If you knew the gift... You'd be asking me, and I'd be giving you living water. You would ask me for a drink. (laughs) What do you think it means to this woman when this Jewish guy says, if you knew the gift of God? (laughs) Can you imagine some woman sitting on the park bench, and guy comes down and says, yeah, if you knew the gift of God that I was given to you. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. (laughs) Mr. Gift, bring in the water. You don't even have a cup, man. And the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? (laughs) Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give them will never be thirsty again. You know, what's interesting is I'm sure that this woman had a lot of guys in her life who had kind of acted like they were God's gift to her. She had a pretty good knowledge of how men operate. And when this guy comes and is asking something of her and then is telling her he's the gift and he doesn't have a cup to draw water with, she's probably like, you know, I've seen guys before who have come to me and who have acted like they have something to offer me, but they don't have the means to provide anything and their well is already dry. She pulls the generational card and talks about Jacob. And this is a hot spot for the Jews and the Gentiles because this Jacob's well place is where the, or not the Gentiles, sorry, the Samaritans, between the Jews and the Samaritans, because this is, of course, their holy place. It's their holy place. And they, they, they name it their holy place because of their heritage under Jacob. Jacob had his great experience worshiping here in the ladder and, and, and all the, the, the amazing stuff that was going on here. Well, I mean, that's Jacob, right? So, so it affirms things. And 
She says, well, unless you're greater than Jacob. And he's like, this well might still be given and putting out here, but you'd never be thirsty again if you got what I had to give you. Notice that this woman can't really comprehend what it is that Jesus is talking about. She's not fully in tune yet with what Jesus is doing. Jesus says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Boom, she bites. So far, she's been deflecting. She's been deflecting. She's been like, okay, you're a Jewish man. Whatever your angle is, I'm not interested. This is awkward. You're being weird. Leave me alone. You guys already probably know the story that she's here at noon because she can't hang out with the rest of the ladies who come early in the morning when it's not hot because of her lifestyle. She's already an outcast to the Samaritans. The last thing she needs is a Jewish rabbi condemning her. And she's been deflecting him like it's her job. And in this moment, she's like, wait, I wouldn't need water anymore? Okay, I'll, I'll take the bait. What do I need? What do I need to do? The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come out here to drink this water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. You guys know the story at this point, right? She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five already, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. This just got very real. This just got very real. And I feel bad for the woman because Jesus has been trying to make headway, get past the barrier between Samaritans and Jews. He, there's all the social constructs that keep him away from being able to connect to her. But he wants to help her, but he's got to break down the hardened wall that's around her own heart, and that's between Jews and Gentiles. And so he's been dismantling and trying to find a way into her heart. And she's been deflecting and deflecting. And then finally she says, okay, I want the living water. And the very first thing that he says to her is go get your husband. Man, Jesus. You were trying so hard to be tender with her and to care for her. She finally gets vulnerable. And the first thing you do is call out her weakness. Why? Because what Jesus knows is that the spirit of this woman, in her heart of hearts, she is willing, she is open, she desires God. And he knows it. But he has to get to the core of her heart. And so when she opens the door, he's like, all right. He confronts the reality of truth. See, this is the thing. The truth is that she has not submitted to the truth. Her life has not yielded to the truth. And in her heart, she might desire God. But in her life, there have been things that have been wildly inappropriate, it seems like. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with abuse. I'm sure she's been taken advantage of. I'm sure it was very difficult in her life to navigate the social constructs that were around her. But what Jesus is doing as a Jewish rabbi is going to pull it all apart, get to the core of it, expose to her her own complicity in her sin and her brokenness because of her ability to compromise the truth and justify that because of her circumstances. And instead, he's going to say, whatever your circumstances are, you still have to yield to the truth. What does she do? It's amazing what she does. Go call your husband. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. There's truth. And he's like, there's a confession. The woman said to him, I love this, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Deep perception. And we all laugh, and I laugh every time I read this, but the crazy thing is, if someone came up to you and told you stuff about yourself right now, would your first thought be that they're a prophet? 
for many of us in America, our first thought might be, who did you hire and have you been reading my mail? We're skeptics and we don't believe it. And the nice thing is about this woman is right away, she's like, busted. You're a prophet. Then her response to it is really interesting. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. All right. Listen to what he's what she's doing. This just got faith-filled. This just got religious. So what does she do? She deflects. And she goes back to the social norms. And she essentially says, you may be a prophet. You may know what you're doing. But get out of my business. Because you guys are over there. And we're over here. Why are we even having this conversation? And so they go, she, she reverts back to the social norms. You don't come to my church. You're not a part of my family. I don't know you. <laughs> you know. And so she goes to a safe zone by withdrawing back into her spot. And what Jesus says is, all of that stuff about you guys worship on Gerizim, we worship over here, all of that is about to go. It's about to disappear. However, this is what he does say. You worship what you do not no. The truth is missing. The truth is missing in your lifestyle. The truth is missing in your religious practices. The truth is missing in your doctrine. This woman across the board, he's like, you do not have truth in operation. You have not yielded to God's guardrails. The ethics of scripture are not playing out in how you're pursuing the mission of your life. You are not yielded. And the Samaritans in their doctrine are not yielded. This stuff is wrong. It's wrong. It's just wrong. But after saying that, it says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Bingo, we got our message, we got our sermon. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Best part of the passage right here. The woman says she deflects one more time. She tries to pull the ripcord one more time, put a parachute up one more time, and she just says this. I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. What was that right there? She's like, Okay, I'm going to wait, and you obviously have the upper hand in this conversation, but a Messiah is coming, and he'll navigate all that. And this is the moment where we should fall on our faces before Christ and acknowledge just how amazing our God is. This is the moment where we who follow him in spirit and truth have to worship. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now listen, a chapter before, just a few days before, whatever, he was talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was begging him to tell him the truth about whether he was the Messiah or not. And he will not give it up. He just will not speak it. His, his message, to, his message to, to Nicodemus is essentially this. He's standing in the ocean. And Nicodemus is like, how's the water? And he's saying, why don't you dive in and find out? That's his message to Nicodemus. You know when you're trying to get in water and it's like real cold? It's like chilly. It feels real chilly, even on a hot day. But you know that spot, like right between your shoulder blades, above it, right there in your neck, that has to get underwater, 
in order for you to get used to it. Like, you got to immerse in it. And what Jesus has been saying to, to religious leaders who might be curious is I will not play truth games with you. I will not play doctrine games with you. I will not let you have a religious system that makes you right. You're going to have to dive into the water. You got to be born again. You got to immerse yourself. You can't come to me scared in the middle of the night, afraid of being socially awkward and what people will think, and expect to still maintain all of your position and all of your applause and receive from me. That's not the way it's going to work. And he just got done saying to the Samaritan woman here that the true worship is what we as the Jews know, not what you guys know down in Gerizim. And yet, that Jewish religious leader doesn't know that Jesus is the Messiah. And here, this woman gets to find out. The rare moment when Jesus just says it. I who speak to you am he. And of all the people to speak it to, this one. Beautiful, beautiful thing. Because she had a broken and contrite heart. He tells his disciples a little while later, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. You can have good intentions, but if our lives don't conform to truth, well, it's going to be a struggle. And we can get our doctrine dialed in, but not have a heart that's pursuing God, and that leads to legalism. I can have a heart that wants all the right things, but, but not submit to reality, and that's just going to have me chasing every whim and every, you know, kind of spiritual sense that I can have. You can't, we can't chase spirit and we can't chase truth. We can only chase Jesus. Got to bring this in for a landing. So here we go. The truth is God's alphabet. The truth is God's vocabulary. The truth are the bones that form the body. The spirit is the wind. It's the breath. It takes the alphabet and the vocabulary and it puts it into phrases that God is speaking to me. The bones of truth provide a skeletal system, but following Jesus allows us to move in concert with him. The way I need to go after truth is that I need to understand truth is what it is and it's my job to accept it, to receive it, to yield to it, and to obey it. When it comes to the spirit, I understand the spirit is not stagnant. It's moving like the wind. And I must pursue and follow and chase. Jesus is one who we walk after who we follow, the spirit we walk with. I want to read just this statement for you that you can write this down. Write this down if you're taking notes. Life in the spirit is life under Jesus. We cannot be in the spirit unless we submit ourselves under Christ. Life by the spirit is life through Jesus or life for Jesus, I'm sorry. So if we're going to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, that happens when we live for Jesus. And life with the Spirit is life through Jesus. If I want to live the life with the Spirit, then I enter through the brokenness of Christ. All right. If I want to hear the orchestra of God in my life, if I want to hear the very words of Jesus, if when he shows up at the well for me, if he shows up and he's speaking to me, there's a couple things that are really important. One is that I know the truth because the more of the truth that I know, the more he can speak to me. And then my heart has to be yielded and desirous of God. Because unless my heart is willing, it doesn't matter how much of this I know, I'll be just like Nicodemus. 
I won't be able to hear the Spirit. I must be born not only of water, but also of the Spirit. I just want to close us in prayer right now and have that be our our kind of closing application here, okay? Let's go into a moment of prayer. frame this prayer with uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may present yourself unto God as living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, pleasing act of worship. We thank you, God. We thank you, God. That when we pursue you, we are not just called to take empty, dry religious principles to apply them to our lives in a lifeless, helpless, hopeless, powerless way that leaves us empty and hungry and dry. We thank you, Jesus, that when we pursue your spirit, that you don't leave us without guide and without direction and without an understanding and a knowledge of what is happening in the spiritual world. We thank you that in you, Christ, there is both the signposts of the Spirit, or the signposts of truth, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that there is day by day a living, active presence with us of a true God who is both Spirit and truth. We honor you, Jesus, for revealing yourself to us in the flesh, embodying and incarnating truth among us. We bless you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling in each of us and among all of us and leading us to the truth. We thank you and honor you, God, that you are not lifeless and you do not leave us alone. We thank you and bless you, We come to you in worship, God, understanding that our hearts must be broken, yielded, honest before you in order to receive you. God, help us not to hide as the Samaritan woman was at first. Help us not to have pretense the way Nicodemus was at first. Lead us, God, as Nicodemus did eventually come to the cross in the middle of the day. Lead us, God to be bare bones, honest with you and with one another, that we may be led by your spirit to be yielded to your truth, to be able to walk openly with you, our pleasing act of worship. In the name of Jesus.